Welcome to Roots and Routes, where we journey across continents and generations. I'm your host Lena. Join us as we delve into the childhood stories of amazing guests. We'll investigate those pivotal moments, uncovering how cultural traditions and family values shape dreams. From bustling cities to quiet towns, old school wisdom to new age innovation. We'll piece together how parenting styles intersect with personal journeys. Whether you are a parent, educator, or curious soul, get ready for heartwarming stories and deep conversations that broaden your horizons. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Roots and Routes. I'm Lena. Recently, one of my immigrant friends, a Indian American mom who has listened to my podcast, expressed how refreshing it was to hear someone like me on the air, whose first language isn't English, and who shares similar identities and the life struggles with her. As a newly first-generation immigrant who didn't spend the majority of her life in the United States, she often finds herself being categorized into the Indian American group, which doesn't fully represent her identity. Because even with her American citizenship, she still doesn't feel quite Americanized yet. She also faces the challenge of raising her children amidst a different culture and value conflicts. I know, just a simple label like Chinese American or Indian American doesn't fully explain who we are. We didn't come to this country young enough to have English as our first language. We didn't grow up playing Easter egg hunts or attending high school proms with boyfriends or girlfriends. We still don't quite understand the mystery of how macaroni cheese or chicken nuggets can be a proper meal. We're still trying to process the truth that our children's childhood will be completely different from ours, and there is no reference to look at or experiences to learn from. We are in this journey of becoming someone who carries complex identities, who are no longer the old version of themselves, but not quite the new version yet. Who are part of this collective feeling of belonging and not really belonging? Who lives in between the two different realities and creates a unique future with the unknown? I share all your confusion, fear, hesitations, and all the weird combination of the hidden homesickness and the comfortness of being at home at the same time. Standing at a crossroad every day, with our roots and routes intertwined together. But please, just remember, you are brave and you are awesome. Every day, you should celebrate how well you have been kicking this new life's ass. You're living this unique and extraordinary life that you will only have once in your lifetime. Humans are extremely good at adaptations. We have been doing this for thousands of years, and we are doing it now. 
there are so many others out there experiencing the same life in different corners of the world. So, we're not alone. Today, I'm excited to introduce our guest, Rebecca Jo Rashti, who has been the true global nomad champion since she was a child. She has moved 11 times internationally, attended nine different schools before she turned 18, traveled 35 international cities within a year with her husband and children. A mompreneur who is fully embracing this life journey of living with both complexity and simplicity who once got lost in this fitting in or not fitting in life journey, but eventually find her new path to let go all the emotional burdens along the way. There's so little we need in life to live a good life. Being able to observe going from different countries and, you know, we just need our basic needs met. I had this shift this one day. It was, it's a privilege to be able to decide what I want to do next. I moved around so much, but I still carried so much emotional baggage with me. So now I'm able to help people, guide people, and teach them how to let go with gratitude. Stay tuned. We will dive into a deep conversation with Rebecca, uncovering the remarkable story of her global nomad life. seemed to last forever. It's a world where everything is known and worth knowing. A moment where everything is good and nothing is lacking. It's a world where nothing is evil and everything is possible. A moment where everything is believed and nothing is questioned is a world where everything is clear and nothing is hidden. A moment where you think the story is the way the world is. A moment is when you can say, if you were ever young, if you ever had a childhood. Rebecca and I first met in our early 20s while working at a high-end fashion PR company in Shanghai. I'll never forget the day I first met her. She was wearing a pair of bright yellow rain boots even though it wasn't raining. What intrigued me was the challenge of guessing where she was originally from. Her clothing style, language proficiency, cultural nuances, and all the little details just made her seem like a perfect blend of international figure. She spoke English, Mandarin Chinese, and Japanese fluently without a distinct accent. She effortlessly fits into any social group regardless of age, position, or background. She was like the typical global citizen you'd find on Getty Image. Everybody in our company loved Rebecca. She was smart and popular, but in the opposite way of being intimidating. I couldn't help but wonder, how could she pull off this mixed identity so perfectly? Is she even a real human? 
As we became friends, I discovered the complexity of her origin. Both of her parents were Chinese and frequent travelers. She was born in the United States as the second child. She spent her early years in Japan. Subsequently, her family relocated to Hong Kong, where she spent most of her childhood before moving to Shanghai, where she spent her teenager years. After all that, she attended a boarding school in the United States and finished college until she returned to Shanghai for work. Rebecca's background is undeniably complex. However, she maintained a simple lifestyle. As years passed by, we both embarked on different career paths after our time at that PR company. While I was still busy with climbing the corporate ladder in Shanghai, she got married, formed her own multicultural family, and relocated to Hong Kong again. She started her own business by founding a baby gifting retailer brand, officially transitioning into her new role as a mompreneur. I still remember the time I visited her and her first baby in Hong Kong. I couldn't believe my eyes. That Getty image girl who once walked out of an office building with bright yellow rain boots was now standing in front of me, wearing a nursing cover, breastfeeding a little human being. Yep, life can turn you inside out. Fast forward six years from my visit. Rebecca and I were sitting in the park under the bright California sunshine, having a picnic with our babies. At that moment, we both were on the career break. She sold her retailer business, taking a gap year with her family, traveling around the world, figuring out life with kids and their next destination after Hong Kong. That global journey took them to 35 cities internationally. Eventually, they ended up with Malaysia, a place they never expected. During her years in Malaysia, Rebecca had moments of feeling lost. Like many stay-at-home parents, the absence of her business left her feeling as though she wasn't financially contributing to her family. That sense of guilt and the loss haunted her. After some self-discovery, she found her passion and the values aligned with Mario Kondo tidying method. Without hesitation, she jumped on the flight, flew to New York, and obtained her certification as a KonMari method consultant. In 2020, she launched her second entrepreneur business, Spark Joy and Flow. A consultancy dedicated to helping clients worldwide find joy and sustainability in both their homes and workplaces. She has also conducted many workshops, courses, and speeches for many corporations, including IBM and Unilever, empowering their employees to thrive in spaces that support their physical and mental well-being. Meanwhile, Rebecca and her family's nomadic journey has never ended. Having reached her 11th international move in her lifetime, she and her family relocated to Edinburgh three years ago. Her two beautiful daughters, who inherit the family's nomadic DNA, have also become two little global citizens. 
They are not just vivid Getty images, but living proof that humans thrive through changes and adaptations as long as they are nurtured with positive approaches. When looking at Rebecca's story, I see three generations of a nomadic family who have fully embraced life changes. They share the same roots, but have taken different routes. Rebecca's life journey may seem glamorous with all exciting international relocations and adventures. However, there were quite a period of hard times that she, as a child, experienced struggles, depressions, school bullies, and the turbulent transitions of not feeling belonging, just like many of others. She carried a heavy emotional burden along her journey, finding way for self-healings until she finally can let go of all that negativity. This self-realization and all the pivotal moments in her life uplifted her to a new level of strength and resilience. Today, in my intimate conversation with my dear friend Rebecca, we'll dive into her nomadic childhood journey and a personal path, explore her family's roots and routes, revealing those tough moments of life and the transformative journey she's undertaken, the incredible tapestry of experiences that have shaped her into the remarkable individual she is today. So, here's our conversation. Let's travel back to the years when you were a toddler. Um, mm. Where were you during that time? Because I was born in the U.S., mm -hmm. so I was there from birth to three years old, and then I was in Japan from three to six. I just remember very vividly the times of my mom taking care of us because my dad was traveling a lot. Okay. So my dad, he's actually an architect. Back then, he was going to places like Iran, Iraq. You know, okay. um, uh -huh. because the company that he worked for, they do a lot of large scale infrastructure project, hotels and shopping malls, hospitals. So you can imagine back then, you know, in the 80s, when you go somewhere like the Middle East, my mom would tell us how he will write postcards. It will arrive long after he's come back. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so it sounds like you spent your toddlerhood mostly in Japan. Do you recall any memories when you were there? You know, I do. I just remember just always being observant. The apartment that we lived in, my mom, she's very, very tidy. So she would always stack the chairs on top of the table so that we can clean all the floors. And every time she'll remind me of how I will always be observing her, just telling her when she's cutting the vegetables to make sure we all chichi so I know. <laughs> don't cut your fingers right that's so, so little things like that I do remember I've always felt a bit like an outsider that's why okay. I've always been quite observant it's a form of safety as well so moving to Hong Kong when I was six I changed schools quite a fair bit mm -hmm. so even from the time that I moved to Hong Kong um you know like within the first year I already went to three different schools oh my gosh yeah you know the first school that I went to my mom wasn't too happy with she wanted me to learn English most of the kids in the school were Japanese <laughs> So I wasn't actually picking up English. So she decided to change me to another school. She wasn't happy with the teacher. And then she moved me to another school after that. Because of having to move around so much and integrate into new environments, my sensitivity to observe
observe what's heightened through that mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, fit in somehow. I have a question because、mm-hmm. you said you were in Japan when you were a toddler, but were you aware that you were in a foreign country, or you just naturally feel like this is where my home is? That's a really interesting question, Lena. I think ever since I was young, home was never a location. See, home is where the family is.、Mm-hmm. So, and I felt that throughout my whole life, and even continuing now. I think that's also why we don't have that attachment to a physical place. That makes、um, sense. Yeah, because my parents themselves, they're also all over the place too. It's in our DNA. <laughs> Yeah. When your family moved from Japan to Hong Kong, yeah, do you remember how you feel about that decision? It felt exciting. You know how Hong Kong is. It's so bustling. Yeah, and the energy is so different from anywhere else. And you know, we go there. We're staying in hotels while we're waiting to get set up in the new place. So it all felt very exciting. I think when you're at that age, you just feel that safety when you're with your parents.、Mm-hmm. And we're very blessed, actually, because. Because typically in a Japanese company, they don't move families.、Oh. So normally the family will stay behind.、Oh, They'll、okay. stay behind in Japan, and then the father will go to wherever they are posted to work. But my dad, he told his company, he's like, he's not moving unless the whole family is moving. So it was quite bold of him to say that as well. Your dad、um, is originally from China. He's Chinese. He was born in Hong Kong, but he grew up in Japan and Taiwan. I see. Yeah, but he basically lived majority of his life in Japan. You know, he was in the same company for thirty years as well. So even for him, as a Chinese person, to work his way up in a Japanese company was really extraordinary. Then you went to Hong Kong. Was it difficult or was it exciting? Like, how did it feel like? So for my primary school, for elementary school, I ended up in an American international school. Felt very happy. I had friend groups and everything. But listening to my mom and getting her feedback, she said that I was actually a very quiet child.、Oh. And the feedback that the teachers would give her was that you know I'm like a sponge and、mm-hmm. I'm absorbing all the information.、Mm-hmm. I just loved reading as well. I just immersed myself in reading. And I think for kids, you know, you pick up language a lot easier. Are true. I think also being Asian, we tend to avoid conflict. Exactly. That's me still today. <laughs> we just want to keep that peace, right? Because of the collectivism、yeah. culture.、Yes. I remember when I was younger, being in that school, we had these like cubby holes, but it was almost like um a storage to put our bags into. But it was sliding doors. You will slam the doors, but you don't realize that someone's finger is on the other side. You know, I slammed my finger so many times as a、mm. child. You know, it's actually I still have these like bumps. And the ridges and stuff too, but it was just something that I just didn't say anything about it. I remember just not speaking up, even though obviously it's so painful, right? So、mm-hmm. I think that also shows. The suppression.、Mm-hmm. Um, you're just like, okay, you're just going with it.、Uh, you're、I、just、see. tolerating things as well. I think、yeah. it's also part of because of I've moved around a lot and then also being highly sensitive too.、Mm-hmm. So by the time I switched schools when I was in、um, fifth grade, okay, and then it started to kind of go downhill. I felt like I was quite happy-go-lucky, but it was kind of the turning point into the realities of how the world works. 
if that makes sense, mm-hmm. because I was quite innocent. And then you start to realize that everyone has that different operating system. I used to victimize myself a lot thinking back on that period. But now because of all the healing work that I've done as well, I can recognize that people hurt people. So yes. they themselves also have a lot of things going on. I've always been very mature for my age, because my sister is six years older. When I was like nine years old, I was already reading like 17 magazine. I had a conversation with a friend about this, we we're talking about how the early 2000, it was a very toxic period in terms of the media influences, the way that the media portray women or like how girls should be all those kinds of narratives were very toxic. It's not like now where it's very inclusive, because I had always known how to perform, right? Mm-hmm. Like my grades were good, all those kinds of things, I knew how to behave in front of adults and everything. So, you know, I was left unattended for a good periods of time, (laughs) I was getting the wrong sorts of nutriments, Mm -hmm. you know, I was learning about the world through the magazines, and then also through my peers, I don't want to generalize to say about the school, but my class was very, very toxic. Is that because of like like a school drama, like bullying those teenagers? Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a preteen, right? And if there was like bullying going on, I got bullied relentlessly as well. And then on top of that, it's also like in the bullying comes in these really nasty, ways of Mm -hmm. oh you're not enough right and it comes from that social comparison you know people use that as ammunitions right like I remember very clearly because we wore uniform to school and then people would be talking behind other people's backs saying like oh they're not wearing Ralph Lauren socks that must mean they're poor oh my god is that real (laughs) yeah I've watched those shows and I've always thought about like do people really be that mean in school oh yeah I grew up in in the very small community schools, mm-hmm. I was never being exposed to schools with children who have privileges or, you know, yeah. coming from rich family backgrounds. So now you're telling me this, it just made me realize. So actually, those things are real in real life. And it really yeah. happened. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, the things that will be even said will be like, oh, so and so's mom picked them up. That means they're poor. They don't have driver. <laughs> you <know>? Oh, my. <laughs> things like that. And it was interesting, because now looking back as an adult, I recognize that these narratives are fed from somewhere else. They pissed it up from somewhere else, right? So it helps because it's also, it's very forgiving. You just realize like, yes, that's also why for you and me, if we place such an emphasis on how the upbringing of children right now to give them those Mm -hmm. roots and those wings to fly. I want to get back to a little bit what you just mentioned, how you felt about yourself during that childhood was Mm -hmm. actually different than how your mom's feedback about what kind of child you were. That just brings me this reflection on childhood can be all different kind of versions through different lenses of people. I was just wondering how your parents describe you as a child and how your sister described you as a child and then how you reflect on the version of yourself. I think in one words, I was just this bookworm. That's how everyone describes me who knew Mm -hmm. me from my child like I always had a book in my hand (laughs) that's also why like I love reading so much to the point where Mm -hmm. I finished reading all of my books and then so I started reading my sister's books as well things are like for older you know I don't know if you heard of Sweet Valley Twin 
Gardens, they have the ones that are for older, Sweet Valley High School, Sweet Valley University. So by the time I was like not even 10, I was already reading Sweet Valley University as well because I've literally read everything, especially from an Asian family. I don't want to generalize, but I think for the most part, we're not like the very vocal type of family either. I see. Mm -hmm. So even dinner time, it'll just be like, oh, my dad might be reading his newspaper. I'll just be reading my book. Really? So your family dinner would be quiet dinner type? It would be quiet or we will have guests. So my parents, they're super religious, like they're Christian, always had a revolving door of people coming into Mm -hmm. our house Mm -hmm. for religious gatherings, or they might be hosting people in the ministry, that sort of thing. So from what I heard through the conversation, so you were a quiet kid who loves reading, but who has Mm -hmm. this rich inner world. You just don't Mm -hmm. really vocalize that much. You described yourself as a kid who has really high empathy because I see you Mm. would tell your mom oh don't cut your fingers and you care about other people's feeling a lot Mm -hmm. yes do you feel like that's part of your nature or you were kind of just being trained in that way through your experience of moving around I've been doing a lot of research on the highly sensitive trait and it is part of the brain how the brain is made up as well so people who have this trait typically you have higher empathy like because Mm -hmm. you are observant you notice things around you, you process things more deeply as well. So one of the things that I have noticed is that when you're not in alignment, then you're often giving at the expense of yourself, right? That's also one of the reasons why I don't want to rock the boat or conflict avoidance, those sorts of things. Add on on top of that being Chinese, right? Being Asian. (laughs) Yeah, you have that responsibility. And then I also had that religious pressure. You know, you have to be a certain way. That religious pressure comes from your parents? Parents. Okay. Yeah, from my family roots, because they're both, you know, they go back a few generations. And even my grandparents were hardcore Christians as well. I see. Okay. So there was like a lot of pressure in terms of the lineage, Mm -hmm. you know, like my grandmother, she was integral, my dad too integral in helping to build churches, like that sort of pressure. Then let's get back to the middle school age, because that's such a tough age. Then through all the drama and through all the Mm -hmm. hardship, how did you navigate through this journey? Not very well, to be honest, because I just started to get a lot of severe stomach pain from the stress of being born as well and I would go to the nurse like pretty much by the end I was just going like all the time and I try to empower myself like you know making friends and other classes that sort of thing but there are times when I would be eating lunch in the bathroom alone all these things because I was ostracized really it was really tough because it came out of nowhere you know people that you thought you were friends with and then one day they just stopped speaking to you I see with no explanation so for someone when you're at that age you're like 11 years old you know you're just like what is going on were your parents parents aware of that? They were, but then they asked, like, do you want us to talk to a teacher? But I was so afraid of repercussions. So I just said, no, I didn't want them to help. And of course, my mom, like we talk about all these things now. And she said, she's like, Oh, I wish I did go to talk to the teachers or help you to change a class or something. But what I did instead, because my dad was working all over, you know, greater China at that time. And he was like, hey, do you want to move to Shanghai? (laughs) (laughs) 
And then so I was like, okay. So know. he offered a solution of getting away. Yeah. <laughs> so is that how you guys just decided to be? Like, okay, let's just go to Shanghai, go to a different place, and start over. Yeah. So that was in 2000 because for him, his work was everywhere, so it didn't really matter where he was based. Yeah, we decided to move then, and my sister had just started university in Shanghai as well. Okay. So we just thought, why not? The issue is when you're not processing things in a healthy way,、mm-hmm. that trauma is just gonna. Carry with you.、True. You're still holding on to it.、Yeah. I went to Shanghai, but then again, I didn't feel whole. I felt like an outsider. The school that I went to was very clicky, so it was separated by you know the Koreans, the Japanese, the Taiwanese, and then there was me, right? <laughs> like kind、mm-hmm. of all over the place. Sometimes you wish you're like, oh, I wish I had a neat and tidy title to just say I'm from here, or know. you know, right? Like you can be like, oh, I'm American, or even because I do identify to say I'm Chinese, but then I also have to. Explain that you know I didn't grow up in mainland China and everything too. So、mm-hmm. you know it's a whole story. Now I see it as rather I used to feel so stressed just from the simple question, and I know that a lot of third culture kids can identify with this as well. But now it's just the reframing. It's like you know I just joke about it. I'm like, do you want the short version or do you want the long version? <laughs> that is so refreshing to hear because kids like me, we would be like,、yeah. oh, I wish I had that kind of experience or. Backgrounds, and I、yeah. wish that I'm international student because、mm-hmm. we don't see the other side beneath this identity. Being someone who has to constantly move and constantly、mm-hmm. adjust themselves into this new social environment is actually、mm-hmm. much harder than we thought. I tried to fit in, right? I went to Shanghai High School, but they had an international division, so it was a really great experience because you get to experience what you know the local high school is like. We share the campus and everything.、Mm-hmm. I was even telling the kids because they had like a Xiao Mai Bu, right? Okay. So yes, get, like, Xiao Mai Bu is the best place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also was telling the kids because we used to get like steam ramen. It was so cold in the school because it was an old building.、Uh-huh. So we would buy the pot noodles because、okay. it just to warm us up during school <laughs> time too. Like little memories like that. And then, but I wasn't happy there. Because I felt like that outsider. Still, I think there was only about a handful of students who were native English speakers. Okay, like probably less than ten during that time. Like, and I'm talking about all the way to high school. And then I decided I was like, okay, I'm gonna apply to boarding school. So boarding school starts from ninth grade in the U.S. Then I decided to apply to schools in California. I was around twelve years old when I did this because my sister went through college application not long before, and then I was. Looking through all of her college catalog,、mm. and that's when I decided. And I was, this is the university that I want to go to, which was in New York, Parsons.、Mm-hmm. So at eleven, I already knew what university I wanted to go to. I just always pictured the boarding school、yeah. as a hard thing for young kids who had to leave their comfort home and fit into a new social environment without parents being around to support. Right,、mm-hmm. but I had never been there, so I'm really、mm-hmm. curious. How did that experience feel like? It just felt like I didn't. Fit in, you know, because even though I was born in the U.S., but I didn't grow up in the U.S., so very different from the people who you know, grew up all their life in the U.S. Of course, there is that sense of loneliness. Why boarding schools do work is because you are in that environment is almost as a herd mentality. So you're just everyone is studying, everyone gets good grades, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because you do have that extra. 
extra support for studies and all the extracurriculars and everything too. So it is such a massive privilege to be able to be in an environment like that. But again, because I wasn't grounded, you know, I got up to a lot of reckless behavior. (laughs) (laughs) Such as? (laughs) Oh my gosh, like so much happened. Um, You know, like sneaking out, um, shoplifting, like all those kinds of things. It was just silly. It's very reckless. I mean, I've apologized to my parents so many times as well, like (laughs) since reflecting on it. And then, yeah, so that's also why I only stayed in boarding school for one year. I actually had to leave the school. Yeah, because of the reckless behavior. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay. Um, So that must be a hard time for you, was it? Oh, it was so hard. It was just pretty crazy. Like, because my sister, she had to quickly figure out what school I could get into next. So she was in Shanghai and she went to go apply for me at the American school. And then because Mm -hmm. I have a US passport, so obviously the process was a lot smoother. So yeah, it just reminds you, it's like, okay, even though I felt alone, but I've always had this wonderful support from my family. You know how you mentioned, how did my parents feel about me going to boarding school? And they were really open to it even the fact that we're Asian but they're not really the typical Chinese family they're not like oh you need to be a lawyer or a doctor you know my parents let me go to art school which is quite unusual yeah that's true (laughs) so they've always been very supportive in that way so then that's how I moved back to Shanghai to finish off and you know like actually Lena I met you when I was what how old were we 22 something like that yeah early 20s you were very young I think you just graduated graduated, right? Okay, this is also another thing, because you were talking about like the wild past, the reckless behavior. Basically, I got it out of my system by the time I was 18. Oh, (laughs) yeah, that's why like, you know, I calmed down. Like when I went to college, I actually calmed down because I had done everything already. You know, like a lot of times people reserve it for going to college. And I always joke about it to my mom, too. I'm like, Uh yeah, you see, even though I was a wild child, but I got it out of my system. So it's like having the outlet because sometimes we talk about other families where when they had been under quite strict upbringings growing up and then when they go to college this is a typical story right they go to college and then they go completely wild exactly yeah Yeah, for me it was the opposite (laughs) what I learned along the way is that even though I went to so many schools along the way I always knew that I wanted to go to New York for university even though I went to three different high schools but my eye was always on that goal Mm -hmm. since I was 11 through along the way I think it's also that reminder that like, yes, your mind is powerful, you can achieve what you set your mind on, but it has to come from that place of wholeness, right? And also just holding it lightly too. Because mm-hmm. everything that we think we know is not always going to turn out the way that we think it is. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. So looking back, have you had any single moment through your childhood questioning or doubting or resenting about this constantly moving lifestyle? I did. I actually lived in a place of resentment and negativity for most of my life, actually, probably for like a solid, like, you know, close to 20 years of my life. I had always been uh, victimizing myself. Mm-hmm. And then it's really through through all of the healing and the inner work that really changed everything. That's also why I do what I do now to help others too, because I know that this works. And we can live life through the lens of gratitude, through positivity, but it's like exercise. We actually have to work at it. Yeah. So your parents, your sister and you, your family, have you had conversations about this topic? Mm -hmm. Does everybody have different feelings about this experience? Yeah. Everyone has very different um, viewpoints on it. You know, even from 
my mom. She met my dad and she they got married right after she finished college. She went to university in a place in Kobe in Japan. And my dad was living and working in Yokohama and Tokyo at that time. So for her, she had to uproot everything, you know, move to a whole new place, got pregnant very quickly as well. And my dad was traveling all the time too. So it was really hard on her mm-hmm. to be so alone, basically single parenting. And she comes from a very close knit family. So we're able to reflect on all of these things because it is really healing. My mom's also able to recognize like, yes, that's why it was harder on her because she had a very different idea of what family is compared to my dad's upbringing. My dad was more wild in the sense because he was one of eight siblings. So he just had to kind of bend for yourself. He started working from a really young age. I think around the age of 11, 12 years old, he started doing like ramen deliveries and he's always been working. Even though for us, we felt like he was never at home. But then we can also recognize that, you know, for him, what he's doing for our family is already an upgrade compared to his own childhood because Mm -hmm. his childhood, he didn't have financial security. Yeah. And then for my sister as well, actually, she moved around Japan and US when she was younger, like elementary school. So when she went to secondary school, a British school in Hong Kong, so she told my mom when they moved to Hong Kong, she was like, mom, I don't want to be the new girl anymore. So Hong Kong was the longest place that we lived. And my sister was able to graduate in Hong Kong. So her wish came true too. (laughs) I can see your sister feels different about this nomad life and you know unlike you because you always talk about how you see your nomadic lifestyle as like a positive thing Mm -hmm. empowered you so she made her choice rooting her family in Hong Kong and trying to be stable for her family right so in your opinion what are the reasons that she and you would have different interpretations and attitude toward this nomad life probably because of the what she carried over from her childhood felt like she just wanted her kids to have one place to grow up. Just like how mm-hmm. I was saying to you, oh, we're often quite envious of people who can say, oh, this is where I'm from. You know, this is who I am. Yeah. Like very short and simple answer, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think she wanted to give her kids that experience. Mm-hmm. But for me, I, I really want my children to have a world embracing view. We're all unique individuals. So what our ideal family lifestyle might look different to other people's. And that's okay. It's all about embracing, but just owning your truth. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful for each place that we live because this works for me. This didn't work for me. You just develop an uh, agility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now you're a mom and you have two girls. You also somehow constructed a childhood for your children to have a nomadic lifestyle Mm -hmm. because they have moved around too. What are the differences between your children's nomad life nowadays and your own nomad life back then? Like if you see these two different but similar experiences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's such a great question. And I was just talking about it with a friend earlier today too. We were just talking about how the process of parenting can be so healing to your own childhood too. And being able to not project our own experiences onto the children because they are unique in their own ways. We actually talk about all of these things. We get the kids involved in the conversations. You know how even back in 2017, when we took that year off, the family sabbatical, people Mm -hmm. told us, they're like, your kids are not going to remember. Amina was not even one years old at the time. Naima was not even three when we started traveling. Mm -hmm. And people said they won't remember all that kind of stuff. 
stuff, trying to put us off it. But we still talk about those amazing experiences. The limiting beliefs are usually set upon by the adult. Mm -hmm. And now I'm also able to empower them too. We have conversations about these things all the time. Like one of the things I had been exploring recently, because we would love to put some root here in Edinburgh in Scotland, because I think it's a really amazing place to raise children. You've been here too. You were our first guest. Agree. (laughs) Yeah, it's an amazing place to raise children. You know, we talk to the kids about all these, oh, house hunting and school catchment areas. And they're part of that dialogue, which I think is beautiful. Because of their temperament and their personality, that will also impact our decision making. I think in the last year of observation, I was able to just see like girls are so adaptable. They're both highly sensitive, but they love change. Mm -hmm. So that's their unique temperament. I think it's in the DNA. So they're like, oh, I can't wait to go to a new school. It's very healing for me to see that as well, because it's giving them a voice and giving them that choice in the decision making because it's a huge part of their life, right? Rather than telling them what to do. Yeah, that's how I'm approaching it with my family. So I think, you know, our past experiences can always guide us in how do we want to show up for our kids, how to parent in a way that's not just a projection of our own unresolved issues. Mm. I see your personal past right now is mainly about this concept of letting go. Does that relate to your childhood experience? And how did you find about this path of letting go and you decided to embrace it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I couldn't let go as a child. Like I said, I always victimized myself. I was so resentful. You know, I would burst out crying. I always just felt like the world was against me or whatever it might be. But those are narratives that we create for ourselves. You know, even if something had happened in the past, and you can't let that go, you're actually storing it. You're actually using up precious space inside of your heart and your mind. You're still carrying that weight with you. Mm -hmm. And so how I came about this path was about 10 years ago, I read Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And I grew up in a really tidy household because my mom is like quite OCD. You know, they have that Japanese culture upbringing too. But then when I read that book, I realized I was like, I had been tidying wrong my whole life because the concept is it's all about emotional readiness. It's all about positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And it's a gratitude practice. And we all know that these are things that are good for us. But these are things that typically, especially letting go, it's something that we're not taught. Mm. It's like a basic life skill that we're not taught. Actually, as a human race, if anything, we're taught to hoard. right? Yeah. <laughs> because again, it's that safety. We feel safe when we have a lot of stuff, but actually it, it will create more friction if we're keeping things for the wrong reason. So this is where that practice comes in too. When we're able to let go with gratitude, this is when you can fully let go of the item. Mm -hmm. If you're letting go with resentment, let me give you an example. It's like, you know, you get something from a past relationship or a friend that you no longer speak to. It's an emotionally charged item. And if you're like, oh, I hate that person. I'm going to let that go. Mm -hmm. You're actually not letting it go. You're still storing that inside of you. So that's where I come in. And then we reframe it. We -hmm. reflect on it. We reframe it because every single person that comes into our life or whatever experience that we might have, we can turn those wounds into wisdom. So this is what helps us to move forward in the right trajectory. We realized that Hong Kong was not a place where we wanted to raise our children. Mm -hmm. It didn't align with our values because I had been avoiding it. I just thought that this was my life path that I had to follow. This is where I spent majority of my childhood, this is where I have to raise my children, etc. And then once having that stillness to be able to talk about it, that's when we decided we're like, hey, let's take a family gap year. 
So we just went for it. Mm-hmm. And then when we moved to Malaysia, then again, I felt that void. I And then this is why the practice is so powerful, because we can reflect on the things that are holding us back. Mm-hmm. And then we can see what belief systems are still serving us and what no longer serves us. So mm-hmm. one of that belief system was that I'm not contributing. I felt like I was worthless. Like even though my husband had never said anything like this to me, but it's so deeply ingrained in us. True. <laughs> I feel the same. I've been there. Yeah. And especially as women, like we know we live in a magnificent time where we are able to work. We have so much more freedom than are the previous generations, but we put a lot of pressure on ourselves thinking mm-hmm. that we need to do it all, that yeah. we need to be able to be a homemaker and have a successful career. And you also have that narrative like, oh, I go to university so that I can get a high paying job. One of the things I always tell people when you're feeling a little bit lost is I really highly recommend volunteering, Mm. you know, giving back using your time intentionally as well. So when I went to volunteer, then one of my friends, she was the one who said, Hey, did you know that you can become a consultant? You know, all of these things, like I don't believe in coincidences, I feel that everything is serendipitous, Mm -hmm. and everything happens at the right time for the right reason as well. Mm -hmm. And it's up to us what we want to do with it. Mm -hmm. You know, like the universe is always going to provide you opportunities. Yes. But it's up to us. Okay, you just said that you think Hong Kong was not the ideal place for you to raise your children. Um, So how would you describe the place that would be ideal for your children's childhood? So for our ideal family lifestyle, you know, that's why we're here. We want kids to have access to nature. Mm-hmm. We want them to be able to explore various interests, right? Like even just being able to do extracurricular classes. I remember being in Asia is just so exorbitant, mm-hmm. you know, and it can be very expensive. You can be paying like easily 50 bucks for a class, that sort of thing. Yeah, That's very prohibitive mm-hmm. to a child's growth. We want there to be harmony in terms of the access to the resources, like having nature as well. And like, you know, these are simple things that shouldn't have to cost a lot. And it should be accessible to all. It shouldn't only for a select group of people. And then also here because the museums like so there's so many ways to nurture children and Mm -hmm. to support their growth, not only academically, but spiritually, creatively, even just going to the library, having an amazing library. That's such a privilege. Yeah, that's true. I'm so glad you guys found this happy place. And mm-hmm. we visited you guys last summer. And it was yeah. wonderful. I think that's the thing we can get excited about change following your joy because life is too short. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that it's an easy path. But just that when you know that you're doing something that is true to you, yeah. you won't regret giving it a shot. Thank you. That was beautiful. And thank you for sharing your personal stories with us today. There are some part about the hardship that you went through and that Mm. vulnerability I think that could really relate it to a lot of people who are listening to this I just want people to know like you see people having this wonderful life but you don't know what they have been through and how they came all the way to this point so I just Mm -hmm. really wish this conversation could inspire more people to be brave enough to really embrace themselves and learn how to let go so they can have more possibilities in their life thank you Lena I think because for a really long period of my life, I didn't think life was worth living. So now, you know, this is my purpose, right? Like I want people to understand that through your hardship, through your challenges, we can thrive through it. And you're never alone. Don't be afraid of asking for help as well. You know, as humans, we can get through anything. 
I love how this conversation has truly brightened my day. As I looked at those old pictures of Rebecca and me, I began to see her in a new light. The nomad child who had been to so many places and overcome so many challenges has now blossomed into a remarkable woman who is shaping the world in the positive way, guided by her own narratives of letting go. Her journey reminds me of the renowned scholar Walter Fischer and his narrative theory, in which he believed that humans are natural storytellers, and our worldviews and values are shaped by the stories we encounter and share. Rebecca's story made me wonder how we will share our narratives with the generations that follow. How can we change our stories to let go of the past and empower others? If you find Rebecca's approach resonating with you, you can explore her work further on her website, sparkjoyandflow.com. Let's all be part of the positive narratives. In our upcoming episode, I will be excited to talk with one of my old friends, Sarah Routh. An Iowa-born musician and songwriter who lives outside the norm. When you're young, everything's out of balance. You're not going to find the balance. A free spirit who has once lived a wild and adventurous life in China. China means to me patience. It's a different language. It's a different way of delivering emotion. An LA Music Critic Award winner who seeks for truth and prays for justice through her music. I never let criticism get to me. I own who I am as an artist. In Los Angeles, it's a hustle. There is so much pressure to play at the certain places that people are going to go to, or get recognition where you think that you deserve recognition. Because I don't want to feel that way inside. Because then I won't be able to deliver the way that I want to deliver as an artist. A mom, a sister, and a daughter who embrace each day with authenticity. Outside the norm, it's just I don't have any cares to deliver myself in a way that isn't true to me. I think life is so much easier if you just live true to yourself. If your authentic self can be delivered daily. Stay tuned for a heartwarming conversation as Sarah shares her incredible life journey and music. See you next time. <laughs>